Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here. Tonight is the festival of Shavuot. So I thought for our study today, we would study texts that uh, prepare us for Shavuot, that are related to Shavuot. Um, Shavuot is the festival. Uh, it's known in English, often you've seen it as Pentecost because that's the Greek translation of the 50th day from Passover. It's called Zman Matan Toratenu, the season of receiving the Torah, because Shavuot, in, as, a, as a part of the sacred march of Jewish history, is seven weeks after leaving Egypt and slavery at Passover, we arrive at the mountain and receive the Torah. And so it's the festival of receiving the Torah. And it's also called Chag HaBikurim, which means the festival of the first fruits, because this was the time when the barley would be harvested, fresh loaves and would be brought to the temple in gratitude for a successful harvest of the wheat and barley. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, um, it's, it's early summer in Israel now. So um, the fullness of spring that we're experiencing now uh, just arriving, it's like when all of our, um, Shavuot often coincides uh, with strawberries, here, and rhubarb and asparagus, and uh, and so we can have our own festival of first fruits. And you know, one of the one of the blessings for me, being so-called stuck in the Catskills, which is a pretty darn good place to be stuck, is uh, I've had I'm not going anywhere, and I'm not. It, this time of year for me is a time filled with barn bat mitzvahs and weddings and end of school and it's a lot and it and this year because of the because of the sh closure i'm watching the spring more closely than i have in memory and uh boy is it amazing just amazing so it's a good time for me to mark the time of Shavuot. What I'd like to do today is look at the book of Ruth with you, and you'll soon know why. Uh, each of the festival days, each has, has um, you know, in the, in the section of Torah called the writings, there are five scrolls, five Megillot, um, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Ruth, Lamentations, and the Song of Songs. For some ancient reason, these five are grouped together and are known as the five scrolls. The word Megillah means scroll, if you didn't know. So when we say the whole Megillah, that's uh, the Gansa Megillah, that's um, an American, a Yiddish, a Yiddish phrase coming from the Jewish tradition that made it into English. 
Um, and into common parlance, at least among certain generations of people here. So each of the scrolls is identified with a different um, holiday or observance in the Jewish tradition. So on Sukkot in the fall, we read Ecclesiastes. Um, and then come the uh, uh, come, um, Purim, of course, we read Esther. Passover in the fullness of the springtime in Israel, we read Song of Songs. On, Pat, on Shavuot, we read Ruth. And on Tisha B'Av, on the ninth of Av, in the middle of the summer, we read Lamentations. And uh, the reason we read Ruth on um, Shavuot is pretty straightforward, actually, in terms of it, the main thrust, which is that it takes place, Shavuot, I mean, the Book of Ruth takes place during the time of the harvest, of the first fruits, which is Shavuot time. So it's explicitly connected to this season of the agricultural year in Israel. But it's a very, very beautiful and deep book if you uh, haven't uh, encountered it in a while. But even if you have, it's only four chapters long and it's told in the form of a very uh, tightly constructed and um, uh, short story or fable or uh, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. And so I want us to look at the book of Ruth today and um, uh, we'll recite the blessing for studying Torah. But before I say the blessing, I just do want to add that tonight we'll be gathering at seven o'clock and we'll light the candles and say the Kiddush for the festival. And then we're going to have our talent sharing evening. And uh, as I explained, uh, that uh, we had so many people offer their beautiful, wonderful talents that I needed to split it up, not into two, but even into three. We're going to have a third installment at some point uh, in the not too distant future. Um, but I thought it was a nice connection because Shavuot is the festival of the first fruits where we bring our best to the temple and offer our gratitude. And I thought, well, this will be the festival of our creative fruits, the fruits of our creativity tonight, which seemed like a really nice connection to me. I also wanted to mention that yesterday was Carol Fox Prescott's 80th birthday. Hey, Carol. And it was a happy and healthy birthday, I'm really happy to report. Um, we're going to, um, part of the celebration will be at our service on Saturday when Carol's going to read a piece she's written. Um, if you know Carol and uh, Susan Rosen um, have now created a whole, shall I say, genre <laughs> called In the Voice of Our Mothers, giving voice to biblical characters, women, biblical women characters who otherwise might be named or even unnamed, but writing our story our ancient story in their voice. And so I, 
um, I, I asked Carol if she could write a piece for Shavuot about standing at Mount Sinai in the voice of a female slave recently liberated from Egypt. So we'll hear that on Saturday. And Rabbi? Yes. Um, tonight, for night owls, um, there's traditional to stay up all night and learn. And there are endless things starting at 9, 10, 11, 12, all night long. And if you look at yesterday's email from the shul, there's a link to um, some places to start if you want to stay up Thank after you. the talent show. Thank you. Yes, after we're done, um, we used to stay up all night and then we all got tired. So uh, we had some great all-nighters here. There's a tradition stemming from the Kabbalistic tradition in the Middle Ages to study Torah all night on Shavuot so that you can greet the sunrise. And uh, it's called Tikkun Leil Shavuot. Uh, and uh, fortunately, again, thanks to this online phenomenon, you can actually tune in to, to so many different gatherings all over the place, every different time zone. Um, and uh, Ellen, Rabbi Ellen and Gwen put together a source sheet that is accessible on the weekly email that can lead you to any flavor of Judaism you'd like. Uh, you can even, I imagine, shuttle between them depending on how late you want to stay up or how early you want to get up in the morning. I was in Jerusalem, except for this year because of the coronavirus shutdown, where they're also observing uh, the same um, kinds of restrictions. In, in Israel, in Jerusalem, it says on the festival, go up to Jerusalem and bring your offering to the priest. So now in Jerusalem, since, since uh, 1967, since we were, uh, Jews were once again able to approach the uh, Western Wall. Um, thousands and thousands of Jews get up at four in the morning if, if they haven't been up all night already and make their way to the to plaza in front of the Western Wall. Thousands and thousands. And I was reading from a, a fellow I know named Steve Zorobnik in Israel writing about it. He loves to do this. He's sad he can't do it this year. Uh, because then, as soon as the sun peeps over the horizon, everyone there dobbins uh, um, uh, a silent amida. So at sunrise, at the Western Wall, tens of thousands of people are quiet all at the same time. And uh, for him, that's the minute he waits for all year long. So he was writing about how sad he was that he wouldn't get to do it this year. And he was saying, maybe that's when you really hear the voice of God, when everybody shuts up at the same time. So uh, I really like thinking about that too. Um, okay, thanks for that reminder, Gwen. So now let's say this blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Asher kitshana b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, our God, sovereign of the universe, who gives us commandments and has given us the mitzvah 
of engaging in words of Torah. Amen. Uh, yes, Joan, thank you. Uh, Joan has a picture, a, a painting of gleaners, because uh, uh, this is the time of the gleaning, and we'll look at it later, Joan. Thank you so much. So let's put up the text of Ruth, Gwen, and let me tell you about this a little bit. Thank you. In the days when the chieftains ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah, with his wife and two sons, went to reside in the country of Moab. So they're living in the land of uh, Israel, in the tribe of Judah. And they go to Moab because of a famine. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and his two sons were named Machlon and Chilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem in Judah. So they came to the country of Moab and remained there. So the names are symbolic, as usual in Torah. Elimelech, God is my king. Naomi, that beautiful name, we named our daughter Naomi. Uh, means my pleasure or my delight. But their son's names, Machlon and Chilion, mean sickness and ill health. So those are the son's names. Their things gives you a clue. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Now, Orpah is the back of the neck. And uh, uh, Ruth comes from Reut, which means friend. And they lived there about 10 years. Then those two, Machlon and Chilion, also died. And so the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. And so there was nothing for her there. So she started out with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For in the country of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had taken note of his people and given them food, meaning the famine had ended. Accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and they set out on the road back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, turn back each of you to your own mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that each of you find security in the house of a husband. And she kissed them farewell and they broke into weeping. Now remember in these times, uh, uh, there was only, the only option for a woman, a woman couldn't be a householder. This was true until about 1965, I think, in terms of real estate laws. So uh, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Um, patriarchy, patriarchy runs deep. So if they do not have a husband or a male protector, they do not have economic security in any way, shape, or form. They also don't have children. Uh, and they said to her, 
and this is all so poignant, I'm sure many of you know this passage. No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi replied, turn back my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I any more sons in my body who might be husbands for you? Again, in ancient Israel, if um, a brother died, it was the next brother's responsibility to marry the widow so that uh, the house, that household could produce children. Turn back my daughters, for I am too old to be married. I can't produce any more future husbands for you. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I were married tonight and I also bore sons, should you wait for them to grow up? Should you on their account debar yourselves from marriage? No, my daughters. My lot is far more bitter than yours, for the hand of the Lord has struck out against me. And they broke into weeping again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law farewell, and turned her back and went back to Moab. But Ruth clung to her. So she said, Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Go, follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you, to turn back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And thus and more may the Lord do to me if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw how determined she was to go with her, she ceased to argue with her, and the two went on until they reached Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole city buzzed with excitement over them. The woman said, can this be Naomi? Do not call me Naomi, she replied, meaning pleasant one. Call me Mara, like Maror, for Shaddai has made my lot very bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. How can you call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me, when Shaddai has brought misfortune upon me? So thus Naomi returned from the country of Moab. She returned to her daughter-in-law Ruth the Moabite. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I'm gonna read a little more. Such a good story. Now, Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a man of substance of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Means, Boaz means he has strength within him. Now, what you need to know about ancient custom is that if there was no, if a woman was, was uh, widowed and there was no brother or sibling to marry her and keep her in the family, then it was up to the next of kin to do so. Now, this is where this is the, where the um, we the readers learn something that the characters don't know, um, uh, which is that Boaz is a relative. So we're in on the plot, but Ruth and Naomi are not yet. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, 
I would like to go to the fields and glean among the ears of grain behind someone who may show me kindness. Ah. Uh, yes, daughter, go, she replied, and off she went. She came and gleaned in a field behind the reapers, and as luck would have it, it was the piece of land belonging to Boaz, who was of Elimelech's family. Presently, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. He greeted the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they responded, the Lord bless you. Boaz said to the servant who was in charge of the reapers, and whose girl is that? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is a Moabite girl who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. She has been on her feet ever since she came this morning. She has rested but little in the hut. Boaz said to Ruth, listen to me, daughter. Don't go to glean in another field. Don't go elsewhere, but stay here close to my girls. Keep your eyes on the field they are reaping and follow them. I have ordered the men not to molest you. And when you are thirsty, go to the jars and drink some of the water that the men have drunk. She prostrated herself with her face to the ground and said to him, why are you so kind as to single me out when I am a foreigner? Boaz said in reply, I have been told of all that you did for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and came to a people you had not known before. May the Lord reward your deeds. May you have a full recompense from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have sought refuge. She answered, you are most kind, my Lord, to comfort me and to speak gently to your maidservant, though I'm not so much as even one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here and partake of the meal and dip your morsel in the vinegar. So she sat down beside the reapers, he handed her roasted grain and she ate her fill and even had some left over. When she got up again to glean, Boaz gave orders to his workers, you are not only to let her glean among the sheaves without interference, but you also must pull some stalks out of the heaps and leave them for her to glean and not scold her. She gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an aphah of barley, that's a lot, and carried it back with her to the town. When her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and when she also took out and gave her what she had left over after eating her fill, her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be he who took such generous notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with, saying, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not failed in his kindness to the living or to the dead. For Naomi explained to her daughter-in-law, the man is related to us. He is one of our redeeming kinsmen. Ruth told the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite said, he even told me, stay close by my workers until all my harvest is finished. And Naomi answered her daughter-in-law, Ruth, it is best, daughter, that you go out with his girls and not be annoyed in some other field. So Ruth, she stayed close to the maidservants of Boaz, and gleaned until the barley harvest and the wheat harvest were finished. And then she stayed at home with her mother-in-law. Let's pause there. 
uh, and bring back uh, where we can see each other. Gwen, thank you. So isn't that a beautiful story? And it just continues in that incredibly pastoral, beautiful, kind vein. The whole story is this tone. Uh, since I just read you two whole chapters, there's two more. Uh, does anyone want to share any thoughts or reactions uh, to it? You can type them in the chat, or if you want to, you can uh, raise your hand virtually or, or uh, uh, wave to Gwen, who will be scanning to try to spot you. Joan? Yes. Um, am I unmuted? Yeah. Um, it just, this story has stayed with me over the years as just the, 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 a pinnacle example of loyalty and, 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 and loving, you know, self-sacrifice sort of, but that's the wrong word, just giving of the self for a greater cause and for another person. And, I, you know, I wish I could be that way. I just always had Ruth as sort of a heroine of that example, the, the, the kind of um, quintessential Jewish matriarch mother, more than, more than the others, because I think we get to see her personality and feel for her more so than we do for many of the other female images in the, in the Bible. And, and that's why I think it was so important for me uh, to identify that with a painting that I made, which may or may not say the same things to you, but I had that feeling of sort of obedience and reverence on the part of one for another. Thank you, Joan. Thank you. Roni said, I find it very, dis I find very disturbing that Boaz must say, I will tell my men not to molest you. Yes. Uh, aren't men very disturbing? But that's what a good protector uh, in that situation needed to do. He needed to remind his employees to keep their hands off that lady. Um, hand up. Yes. I always thought that the, that famous saying of whether thou goest, I will go, was related to Ruth and her husband, not her mother-in-law. Right. I, I, this is the first time that, and David felt the same. He didn't know that either. So that's a revelation. Isn't it? And that's why many commentators connect it to um, uh, David and Jonathan in the book of Samuel, who, uh, who also expressed selfless love for each other repeatedly. It's a beautiful thing. Is, is that love, I, I've been reading a little bit about something about it, and I, is that love between David and Jonathan one of just a platonic nature, or does it go beyond that? Uh, it, the text doesn't say, but uh, in recent decades, looking through the um, uh, uh, Torah for kind of like... Um, beautiful statements of, of uh, same-sex affection and love. In other words, you know, the art of Midrash is you take a statement in the Torah and you expand the story in the direction of where you want it to go. So there's Midrashim written now about, about that, that uh, express that. But the Torah itself, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not explicit. What's explicit about is the undying love and devotion that they have for each other. Yeah. Gail so Albert more, more I'm sorry. 
Uh, oh, Blaze wrote, kindness. I heard that the Dalai Lama said that kindness is his religion. Yes, the theme of the Book of Ruth is kindness. Chesed. That's, it's a story about kindness. And that's such a beautiful thing. Uh, I see that Gail Albert raised her hand. Gwen, anyone else too? Okay, Gail. I only see Gail. Yeah, I, I missed the very beginning. I couldn't get on. So I don't know if you said this, but you commented on the pastoral quality of it. And it is such a contrast at Sinai, which is what we read. I mean, this is the Haptor for it, um, which is all, you know, immense volcanic action and fire and all of that. Um, so I just think it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly different tone. That's all. And they're meant to be next to each other. Right. right. So we have, um, we have the story of standing at Mount Sinai, which is all terrifying and awe-inspiring. The Haftarah portion, the portion from the prophets that's chosen for Shavuot by the rabbis, is Ezekiel's vision of the, char the flying chariot with the wheels within wheels and the beasts and the lightning, and the, which is an intensely, oh gosh, psychedelic, mystical vision of God. And then there's this story, which is, is the presence of God found in this kind of kindness and loyalty mm -hmm. and, un, un, and this generous and unconditional um, uh, goodness. So we get all these different contrasts of where you might, how you might experience God's voice. Uh, Joshua Pearl has something to add. I was wondering, um, I saw the theme of abundance. There was Joshua froze. Uh, start that sentence again. Oh. He's unmuted. He's just frozen. Yeah. I know you're not frozen, Joshua, but your image is. Um, uh, see, let's come back around to you because I'm not hearing anything. And... Uh, Raise your hand again in a little while and we'll see if it works that time. <coughs> oh, right, Ruth suggested maybe you can type in the chat. Hey, let me read what people said in the chat. Um, Carol said to Roni, I agree and it's all over the story. Should be considered more as a picture of society than now. And it's the beautiful girl who triumphs. You know, we never get any word, Carol, about um, uh, Ruth's appearance, I don't believe, in the story. Um, uh, but it's still a classic motif. Yeah, Aviva, is... Aviva Zornberg um, taught on Ruth last week, and um, she made a point that we don't get, every other woman in Torah generally we get, they're beautiful, they're yafe, and Ruth we don't. And there are midrashes, if not the story, that talk about her being older, she's already been married. Um, so this is part of Boaz's kindness and love. Oh, so Boaz isn't just attracted to the beautiful young thing. But I, I would go further with that and say that um, 
Esther is specifically described as beautiful. Uh, Rachel is specifically described as beautiful and Jacob falls in love with her and the king falls in love with Esther. And Ruth's attributes, her physical attributes are never described in this story, which I don't have an answer to that, but that is a really interesting and worthwhile contrast to consider. Um, uh, Wendy, um, is Aviva Zornberg available online, Gwen? Um, the, she did the teaching for the Stryker Center at Temple Emmanuel in the city. I believe a recording of it is on their website. Great. If you have a chance, put that in, okay? Um, Wendy Gold said, I think that one of the challenges of understanding and learning from history, and in this case, the Torah, is to put ourselves into the time and culture in which it was written and then relate it to the present. In those times, men's behavior was accepted to be as it was, and that Boaz challenges it says something about his leadership. Well said, Wendy, well said. Yes, there were, were no harassment laws. However, miserably they're enforced at this point, they do exist. Um, inner beauty counts. Yes, that is part of the story. Ellen, Rabbi Ellen wrote, molest might ha also have meant teasing or giving her a hard time because she has to glean. Um, well, the verbal kind of molesting like wolf whistles and sexual comments when women walk around the city, just as demeaning and hard to bear as physical assault. Uh, and uh, um, I want, what I want to say about that is um, uh, that it's so easy. This is a sexual abuse and power are completely connected, always have been. Who are the gleaners? They are women because they have no household they belong to. They are utterly powerless because they have no protector. This is the way the society was organized. That's why widows are lumped together in the Torah always with orphans and with strangers. Orphans doesn't mean people who have no parents. Orphan in the Torah means some, a child who has no father, no protector. So widows and orphans are in the category of the unprotected. They also have no land holding. So they are completely reliant on the commandment in the Torah that you have to leave the corners of your fields for the poor, the widow, and the orphan, and the stranger. <clears throat> and Rabbi Ellen adds, um, that's why they can't, came back. No protection in Moab for widows. At least back home, they had the right to glean. Well put. Um, Helen had a question and Josh is back. Great. Josh, you're next. Josh or me? Uh, Joshua. Yeah, my internet Helen. went down. I'm just uh, using another line. Anyway, uh, can you hear me now? Yes. I uh, had heard uh, the theme of unexpected abundance. The fact that there was mention to having more than leaving some over or just, you know, this sense of surprise. And I'm wondering if that bears some connection on why the story is connected with this holiday in the sense of the receiving of the Torah being a sort of source of unexpected abundance. Nicely put. 
Um, Helen, hold on to your question for a minute. I want to I want to address that. So, the plain meaning of the Torah about why Ruth is associated with um, Shavuot is because it says in Parshat Emor when it's describing the festivals, it says. Uh, on the 50th day, after you've begun counting the Omer, you shall bring an offering of new grain to God. That's now, Shavuot, this evening. And it describes how you're supposed to bring it. And then it says, immediately afterwards, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, the eternal, am your God. So Shavuot and the gleaning and the poor and the stranger are associated immediately in Torah. And I was just thinking Ruth is not only a widow, she's also poor and she's also a stranger. She's a foreigner. That's what stranger means, uh, not native born. So Ruth embodies all of these characteristics and her name, Ruth, as I explained, seems to come from the root for Reut, which means friendship or neighbor. Ve'ahavta le're'echa kamocha. Re'a is a neighbor. And Ruth, uh, uh, Re'a is also a lover, a beloved. So think about the Hebrew there. The word for your neighbor is also a word for your beloved. In a wedding ceremony, we say re'im ha'ahuvim, these beloved companions. So Ruth embodies all of that. And so now I'm thinking out loud, which is the way I do most of my thinking. Um, uh, so now Ruth is also the embodiment of love your neighbor as yourself, love the stranger, love the poor, show that kindness. And love, again, remember, is not an emotion here. It's an action. Um, but that's not the only place in Torah where the connection between the time of the uh, wheat harvest and the gleaning, each time, basically each time in the Torah where the wheat harvest is mentioned, it, it will then say once again, and leave the corn, when you reap the corners of your land, leave them for the poor, the widow, and the stranger. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You know the feelings of the stranger, that same continuous refrain of Torah. Um, so now back to Joshua's point about abundance. Um, yes, I was doing my reading and preparing for class today about all the different reasons that Ruth might be connected to Shavuot. And, um, I like the one you've added there. Uh, uh, this overwhelming outpouring of divine, div divine energy. Thank you. Helen? Uh, yes, can you hear me? Yes. Am I there? Uh, I always had a different picture of Ruth. I pictured her not just that she was, she made her decision because of her love and loyalty of Naomi. I 
I always pictured that she made her decision. She thought about where she would be better off. And she decided she was better off going with Naomi, whom she loved. You know, I'm not, that rather than go back to her people, her land, whatever it was, she decided she was, so I saw her as a strong person who made, and I guess maybe in the light of what happens later, how everything turns out for her and all, I thought she, it showed that uh, she was, I wouldn't say practical, but she thought about what she wanted to do. And it wasn't only because she was loyal, uh, say I'm going to be loyal to my mother-in-law for the rest of my life. It was like, I'm better, I think I'm better off going with her. We'll make out. Well, thank you, Helen. Societally, spe societally speaking, in the place where this was written, she would have been much safer going back to her father's house in Moab. She's a Moabite. And she right. has a family to go back to where she would know where her next meal was coming from. Right. So her action is not practical. There's, there's nothing practical about what she's doing in the context of ancient uh, Near East. What it is, though, is she's exhibiting some other quality, which is going to be rewarded. But it's not because she was savvy, Helen. She's doing it, doing exactly the unsavvy move, which is just like Abraham. In fact, the language in Ruth reflects it. Because why would you leave your father's house and your birthplace to come with me, says Naomi? which is exactly what God tells Abraham to do. Leave your birthplace, your house, your, and go to the place I will show you. Ruth is an embodiment of trust and faith, not an embodiment of practical savvy. You can refute me, but I would, I'm, I, that's my take on it. All right, maybe, uh, maybe the word practical is not right, but we don't know, she's lived, uh, with Ruth and her, and her husband. And we don't know why she doesn't want to choose to go back to her, why she made that choice. To me, like you're saying, it's very strange that she would, anyone would make such a choice. And I'm not taking away from her that she was right to make that choice. So I don't just see it. it you could say, well, yes, loyalty paid off. You know, she was a loyal person and she made the right decision just based on that, but it makes her too passive to me. Uh, really? Too, too passive, like saying, um, no, I don't think she was. I think she was proactive, not passive. But I agree. Saying she just did this because of this, um, I'm going to be loyal to my mother-in-law the rest of my life. I just, it doesn't ring true to me. <laughs> well, let's all talk about our mothers-in-law. <laughs> no, I, I just mean that I think she did have faith that the two of them together would make out somehow. Trust that it would That's be right. better Ruth, for her Ruth. to go back to maybe something she didn't like at home. Um, I was just, <clears throat> I was not putting down mothers-in-law. That was a joke. Please, people, don't be offended. I <laughs> I, that was just, uh, yeah. so, so let that one slide by. Carol um, has a question. Sorry, I need to respond. One more thing to Helen. Um, uh, 
Ruth is the protagonist. One of the amazing things about this story in its unusualness in the Bible, though, as we've studied the women in the Bible, they are often the protagonists in their story, even if the stories are not named after them, is how much Ruth is the agent of her own life. It's, um, it's, and, but she's the agent of her own life only in the interest of love and kindness. And so she's a, she's a heroine in this story. And uh, yes, in one way, it's a fairy tale. It all works out. But the, fifth, the moral of the fairy tale is kindness. True loyalty and kindness is the attribute that we want to uh, uh, have rewarded. Okay, so I, I know that uh, who, Carol and I saw Joan had a hand up before too. Carol, go ahead. Joan, do you still want to speak? Okay, Carol's going to go first. You're muted, Joan. Just a minute. Okay, Carol, go ahead. Well, I I heard, and then I forgot, so I'm glad it came back up. When you first when you first read what she says, what she says is not just I want to go with you because I'm a good person and I love you, and she says my people will be your people, mm -hmm. which means to me that she has taken in something that she identifies with that she wants that fulfills her right that exists in ruth not not i mean in in, in naomi not not in her people so i think that's important i i that i mean she becomes very important in the history of of, of the israelites so let me speak to that that's why ruth is considered in later jewish tradition to be the archetypal first convert to Judaism. Uh, that, so it's, she's not just aligning herself with her mother-in-law, but she's aligning herself with the people of Israel. And uh, so many people who convert to Judaism will often take the name Ruth as their Jewish name because of their deep feeling for this story. No. This is where my soul is telling me to go. And I'm going to be with you and I'm going to live with you and I'm, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you, bury, where you die and are buried, that's where I will die and be, be buried. It's so beautiful and profound. And um, so that also connects it to Shavuot in the sense that Ruth willingly and eagerly accepts the Torah, right? She says, I'm in. And so it connects to when the children of Israel are standing at Mount Sinai and they say, we will listen, we will do, and we will listen. We will accept this covenant. Remember, a covenant is a breach. It's a sacred commitment. Um, it's, not a, it's not just a legal contract. It's uh, the covenant we enter into is a mutual commitment, and some might say it's motivated um, uh, by awe, but Ruth is motivated by love. So Ruth is someone who enters the covenant, who accepts the Torah out of her love. And uh, it's a beautiful metaphor for how we might approach receiving the Torah every year on, uh, on Shavuot. Uh, 
so um, also at the there's another larger purpose in the Jewish kind of storytelling of weaving stories together. So the story continues. And I invite you to read it yourselves. I wish I had time to keep reading it aloud. It wouldn't take too long, but we won't have time today. Davis had something to say too. Oh, oh, thank you. Um, I'll, I'll get you in a second, Davis. And, um, uh, but I just want to lay out what happens in the story, which is that uh, Naomi realizes that, uh, Oh, that's lovely. Uh, I just got a text from Israel. <laughs> um, Naomi realizes that Boaz is a kinsman and that this might be the pathway to security for her and her daughter-in-law, uh, reestablishment of, a, of a, a family. And so she gives Ruth instructions and Ruth goes up to the threshing floor and there's this kind of a drama of, of manners and sexual innuendo and uh, um, uh, suffice to say that Boaz acts with complete honor and uh, uh, realizes that he would like to take Ruth as a wife because it's his legal obligation, but also he, is a, he loves her. He's, his kindness is overwhelming. And, um, but then he realizes there's a closer next of kin. And so that next closer next of kin has to release his obligation in order for Boaz to claim his. And so then there's another set piece where Boaz goes to the city gates, gathers a minion of 10 witnesses and asks this other relative if he wants to fulfill his obligation of taking on Ruth. And the man says, no, I do not. And so then Boaz is, is legally cleared. He's followed all the customs and rules and he takes Ruth and then Ruth has a child. And that child is Obed, whose son is Jesse, whose son is David of Bethlehem. So there's a very deep story here, which is always worth speculating upon about why does the Torah want to tell a story that King David was born of a foreign-born woman who was taken in out of, uh, because of oh, um, uh, kindness and clarity into the people and absorbed into the people. So King David is the descendant of Ruth and Boaz's relationship. And it's a beautiful origin story for King David as well. But also, uh, Aviva yeah. Zornberg brought up a midrash I'd never heard. It was gorgeous that when Solomon, David's son, is deciding between the um, two women who are claiming the child, everybody should know this story. Yeah. Um, Tanakh says in the Book of Kings that his mother is sitting there watching. And there's midrash that that was Ruth, who was still alive and seeing the, the kindness being carried on to the generation of ruling our people. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, Ruth Hirsch is asking, is there any historical evidence? Zero. This should be treated as, a, um, as an origin story. 
um, and as a fable in a way. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence that these people existed or that these circumstances took place. I'm sure there were famines. I'm sure there were all these, you know, um, but uh, no, that's not, that's not the thrust of the story. And thank you, Gwen. Um, Avis. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I have so many thoughts and I'm trying to just narrow it down. And I decided to narrow down to two things that this, um, this is such a fertile story. Um, and reproduction and the reaping of the harvest and that we were all able to reap the beauty of this story. That's number one. And number two, this peace and beauty and loving and kindness. I said, you know, it's almost like the Ten Commandments and Torah all in one story. We didn't need any other stories. And that it was, it's just, that's the way we're supposed to live. And that's the way we all should be. Oh, thank you, Avis. So well put. This story exemplifies the way we're supposed to live. And Rabbi Akiva was asked what the central principle of the Torah is. And he said, love your neighbor as yourself, right? right? And uh, Hillel, Rabbi Hillel said, the rest is commentary. Go and study. So yes, I, this story of Ruth, which uh, we don't pay attention to that often, may be the, this pinnacle story um, of what it means to live the Torah. Thank you so much, Avis. You're welcome, my pleasure. You know, I wanna take this into the present for a few minutes and then I wanna see Joan's painting. Um, because gleaning was the way that the ancient society fed the poor. Like that's how it was done. Um, there were no food distribution networks. There were no, there was no agribusiness. There was no, if you owned land, you could feed your family. If you didn't own property, you were reliant on gleaning. And this is how the society worked. And if you were a stingy, a uh, landowner, you were chastised. Uh, Boaz is being shown, is showing again an example of what it means to allow the poor, the widow and the stranger to have enough and to do it with dignity, right? It, this was a clear, um, clearly part of the rhythm of ancient society. So I was looking up gleaning and uh, we are in a moment where millions of people need gleanings from the excess, from the excess uh, surplus in our society. And I won't give a whole uh, lecture here, for goodness sake, um, but we know that millions of tons of food are going to waste right now, uh, being plowed under fields, uh, going into dumpsters, and that that happens regularly in our society. So there are actually gleaning organizations. There's, I was reading about an organization called the Society of St. Andrew, which is a Methodist-based organization, where, let's see, a nonprofit working with all denominations to bridge the hunger gap between 96 billion pounds of food wasted every year 
That's an unimaginable quantity and the nearly 40 million Americans who live in poverty. They do things like they send volunteers out into potato fields and into other fields to glean after the harvest, but they also go to um, Lay's potato chips factories where potatoes are being rejected tons, thousands of tons because they don't match the um, size and appearance quality and they're rescuing these potatoes and putting them into the system. So I just wanted to say that uh, this is a time where this language of kindness is so unbelievably pertinent right at this moment. And just a little while ago, the Good Neighbor Food Pantry dropped a box of really good food, produce, bread, canned goods at the synagogue as they make their rounds feeding hundreds of families um, in the area. My daughters are volunteering, delivering food for People's Place. My wife has been delivering food for the Ulster Immigrant Defense Network and buying groceries and bless them, you know. And uh, I really wanted to make that very straightforward um, connection between the story of gleaning and the actual gleaning of excess that, that is needed in our country right now. And that many people are working on, many, many, many people are working on. There's a lot of different levels, because you know the food production chain is so complex in our country. <clears throat> but I did also wanna bring that in. And let me read what Ruth said. It brings up again the mystery of clergy, for the most part, not speaking up to the current administration. And we have our own gleaners happening right here. Yes, yes, we do. It started at a Mohonk conference, is now under the wing of family. Yes, physical gleaners, plus all the people gleaning the excess of our food production system and trying to redistribute it. Um, this is a fulfillment of the Torah. And yes, the Torah refutes in its essence the policies of stinginess and lack of concern that typify our current administration. So uh, thank you for bringing it up. Um, now, Joan, would you show us this painting of yours? Unmute yourself, Joan. There you go. Okay, so uh, just Really briefly, I want to say that this has always, I've always call, called this the gleaners and considered it that it was, you know, coming quintessentially from that image of when Ruth bows down to touch the feet of Boaz. And for me, it's a very circular image of how the, the sheaves um, that, that are reaching up for the light are also coming back. There, there's this water image and there are sheaves here of wheat. Um, and, and there's an image of the actual body of Ruth starting to rise up as a spirit. Uh, it just, uh, I feel like there's a, a, a very circular, uh, beautiful, like circle of energy going between the figures and conveying both, uh, you know, this, this uh, abundance and also the, this light of the moon, the mother moon uh, sort of blessing. We could consider these 
uh, grains are also images of the souls of people that are being nourished, being provided. Thank you, Joan. It's beautiful and clear the way you described it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's about balance, isn't it? It's really about the balance of strength and kindness as, a, as, a, as an acceptance, both power uh, to give and the ability to receive. Thank you so much. I want to add one other um, uh, historical point. When I was reading and studying about gleaning, gleaning was a legal right. In 18th century England, it kept being a legal right. It was only the Industrial Revolution that transformed this. There was a famous uh, case in British courts in 1788 that endorsed private property rights and legally prevented gleaners, which had been understood to be their right to glean in anyone's field. Uh, so in the last 200 years, um, uh, we've witnessed that transformation and then the need to figure out what it means to be good gleaners, provide for the gleaning in a post-agricultural, post-pastoral society. We have to keep doing it. And I know, again, how many good people are deeply involved in that right now. And uh, uh, I want to support them. So thank you for this little, this exploration with me. I find it very worthwhile.